Welcome to this week's Scottish Folk Podcast. I am your host, Eileen Budd, and I have been travelling all week. And I've come home to the most wonderful messages and requests for stories from you. And so this week's episode is going to be a whole bundle of requests from you and some other wee bits and pieces from history. And I hope you enjoy it. Now, it may just be the company I keep... I've been having a lot of conversations this week about the Kelliach and witches and places in Scotland that are related to the Kelliach. And because of that, I thought I would share these two stories with you. There's a place in Aberdeenshire called the Forest of Mar. And in the Forest of Mar, there is supposed to be what is left of the ruins of the Kelliach's palace. Now... That little bit of folklore reminded me of one of these stories I'm about to tell you. And now the name of the story is called The Witch of Mar, but it reminds me more of the Kelleach and, well, you'll see why. I hope you enjoy. Old Jenny lived by the seaside and she would gather sticks and seaweed and she would trundle about with a basket on her back and she wouldn't bother anybody. In fact, she would go into the village whenever anybody needed help, medical attention, medicine, herbs, midwifery. She was amazingly skilled, cunning woman, and she was so wise in her herbs and her skills and her spells, I suppose. And she was called upon to do so many different tasks that really the whole village could not do without her. And they were quite happy for her to live on the edge and do as she pleased. The only thing that troubled them is that she did not go to church on Sundays. And they really would prefer she would because the ministers were not happy about her curing people as she did. And they were not the only ones. One day, when Jenny had got back from collecting sticks from the shore back into her house... She sat down by the fire and put up her feet to rest when there was a knock at the door. She went up to answer it and there stood a very well-dressed man in a cape that went from his shoulders right down to the floor and covered his feet and he had a magnificent top hat as well. And when he spoke, it was with a voice as warm as lava. It was like cool. Good afternoon, madam, he said. May I come in? What on earth would you want with me, she said. Well, it's it's about what you've been doing. You see, you've been disturbing my work, he said. Dear Jenny. Well, how do you know my name, she said. Oh, I know everything, my dear, dear Jenny, he said, as he swept past her and went into her house. Now she only had two chairs by the fire, and he took up the one that she had not been sitting in. What is it that you... What's your problem, she said. My problem, said the man, is you're curing people. You're helping the sick. You're preventing people from coming to me. Oh, said Jenny, are you a doctor? (laughs) Ha, 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 laughed the man. No, I'm not a doctor. You see, it's not so much the curing of the sick that I don't like. It's just the fact that you're delaying me getting their souls. She looked at him long and hard. And she noted the length of his big long cape covering his feet. And she noted his beady little eyes and his head that she could barely see because of the big brimmed top hat. Who are you? she said. Come outside with me, he said, and I'll show you who I am. And they went outside. And he said to her, Will you stop curing people? No, said Jenny. Of course not. Are you sure? said the man. Because if you are sure that you won't stop doing it, then I have a punishment waiting for you that is worse than death. 
Now you listen to me, said Jenny. I don't care who you are, and I don't care why you're here, but I'll tell you something. I will never stop helping people as long as I live. Right then, said the man, and he dropped his cape. It's time to show you who I really am. And he suddenly transformed from this man, from this well-dressed man, into this great, big, tall, beastly creature with huge, great, big horns and cloven feet. And he was snorting smoke and fire. I am the deal himself, said the man. <laughs> How are you? said Jenny, looking him up and down. Perhaps it's time for me to show you who I really am. Huh? said the deal, looking at her up and down. And at that, she transformed from being a tiny old stooped woman to being this great, huge giant. She was humongous, much bigger than the deal. And her skin turned this weird blue colour and her hair suddenly became extremely long and white and tangled and it seemed to join in with the roots of the trees around her and she bellowed this laugh that shook the earth. I am older than you, said Jenny, and I will keep helping people or not as I choose to. You don't know who I am, shouted the deal. And I don't care, said Jenny. I've come from the depths of hell, he shouted. And back you'll go, she said, wherever it is. I presume down. And at that, she picked up her great big hammer and thumped him on the head so hard that he plummeted straight through the earth, right into the hell centre. And with that, she transformed back into old stooped Jenny. She went back into her house. She never heard from him again. And she carried on helping people. And as far as I know, she's helping them still. Old stooped one-eyed Kate lived alone in the forest. And no one went near her house because they feared her. They believed that she was an extremely powerful witch and the rumours were that she could raise storms and sink ships and she could see into the future. And so she was happily left alone in her cottage until one day the Lady of Abergeldy walked into Old Kate's kitchen and she found Old Kate sitting with her spinning wheel spinning away and beside Old Kate sat a huge yellow cat. What would the lady want with the likes of old Kate, she said, without even looking up. I've heard that my husband the laird is untrue, said the lady, and I need a seer's help in exchange for gold. <sighs> old Kate sighed, but she picked up her kettle and she put it on the fire. And she began to hum a tune. And as she hummed, the whole cottage filled with smoke and steam, which turned blue and formed shapes. And suddenly, the lady and old Kate could see the Laird's ship and the Laird, and he was standing with a very beautiful woman. The lady was furious. Curse that man, she shouted. It's true. And then she turned to old Kate I'll give you four times as much gold, she said, if you will wreck that ship and drown everyone on it. Old Kate sighed again, and then she began to hum a different tune. She picked up a small cup of something, and she began to swirl it in one of her hand, in the rhythm, in time to her humming tune. And suddenly they watched as a huge, great big, smoky wave came and crashed down onto the Laird's ship, obliterating it. "'Tis done," said old Kate. The lady went back to her castle, and then she began to have 
second thoughts. And when the messenger arrived to say that the Laird's ship had indeed been caught in a storm and everyone lost, well, she told her guards to go to old Kate's house with orders to kill her. But old Kate saw them coming. And when the men arrived, they found the cottage completely empty. Still, they set it alight and they looked towards the forest because they could hear a noise as the whole place burnt to the ground. And they saw two huge yellow cats and they swore it was like they were laughing. And then the cats disappeared into the forest and were never seen again. There is a big rock off the southwest coast of Orkney called Sulskeri, and on this rock, quite a lot of seals like to congregate, at least they used to. And a long time ago, in 1938, a Dr. Otto Anderson wrote down a melody and a song as he heard it being sung. Now, the first few notes of this melody came from a seal. They were sung by a seal and the rest of the tune was composed based on that and the story behind the tune is a selkie story. Now, John Baez a long time ago recorded a version of this song and it's very much her version of it and I thought, well, you could definitely go and find that tune. I'm going to sing you one of the wee verses of it, so excuse me. <laughs> first thing at you and then the rest of the story I'm going to tell you and this is because somebody requested a selkie story and then I thought well what would be better would be to know the song of the selkie and so the next time you're on the beach you might want to sing it <laughs> or at least hum the melody and see if any seals pop up now selkies if you don't know they are basically related to people in Scotland. They are the children of the King of Lochlin under spells. And because of this, there's quite a lot of people in the Western Isles for generations refused to kill seals because they're relatives. And they are, in mythological terms, they are people who can turn into seals and seals who can turn into people by shedding their skin. So... With that in mind, here is the song, and then follows the story. I am a man upon the land. I am a selkie in the sea. My home is in Suskevi. In Norway land there lived a maid. Hush below Lily, this maid began. I know not where my baby's father is, and whether by land or sea does he travel in. And it happened on a certain day, when this fair lady fell fast asleep, that in came a good grey selkie and sat himself down at her bed feet. Saying a whack a whack, my pretty maid, for oh, how sound as thou dost sleep. And I'll tell thee where thy baby's father is. He's sitting close at thy bed feet. I pray, come tell to me thy name. Oh, tell me where dost thy dwelling be? Oh, my name is good Helen Mailer, and I earn a living out at the sea. I'm a man upon the land, I'm a selkie in the sea. And when I'm far from every strand, my dwelling is in Sulskeri. Alas, alas, this woeful tale, this weary fate that's been laid for me, that a man should come for the Wastahoy to the Norway lands to have a bairn with me. My dear, I'll wed thee with a ring, with a ring, my dear, I'll wed with thee. Well, thou may go wed thee wedding's way, whom thou wilt, 
for I'm sure they'll never wed none wi' me. Thou wilt nurse my little wee son for seven long years upon thy knee, and at the end of seven long years I'll come back and pay the nourish fee. Now he had ta'en a purse of gold, and as he'd put it upon her knee, saying, Geet me, my little young son, and tack thee thy nourish fee. She says, my dear, I'll wed thee with a ring, with a ring, my dear, I'll wed with thee, and thou may go wed these weddings with whom thou wilt, for I'm sure thou'll never wed none with me. But I'll put a gold chain around his neck, and guy good gold chain it be, that he ever comes to the Norway lands, you may have a good gay guess on he, and thou will get a gunner good, and a guy good gunner it'll be, and he'll gay out one nay morning and shoot the son of the grey cell key. Oh, she's got a gunner good, and a guy good gunner it was he, and he went out on a May morning and he shot the son and the grey cell key. One of my favourite stories to tell school children when I go and do storytelling in schools is the how seals came to be known as the children of the king of Lachlan under spells and so here's a here's one version of that story i hope you enjoy it clanry lochlin fogas children of the king of Lachlan under spells beauty wisdom bravery is in their blood as well as their skins and that's why the stepmother took such a hatred for them. And she didn't want them to even live. And instead she decided just to get them out of the way. And so for seven long years she studied the black arts until she was a powerful carlin the witch. And she put her stepchildren under eternal spells so that they should be half fish, half beast, as long as the waves beat on the shores. Ah, it's a black deed indeed. And I'm sure you'd know by the very eyes of the seals, if you catch them, that there is noble blood in them. But the worst is still to be told, because three times in the year, when the moon is at its fullest and its brightest, the seals must all change back to their natural state, whether they wish to or not. You see, their stepmother put this in her spell, so that they would know envy and sorrow in their hearts, when they saw the world of man that they were missing and how others were ruling the kingdom that was really theirs. Long ago, but not that long ago, there was a man in Cana who was wandering the shore on an autumn night. The moon was full. And there, did he not see one of the seal ladies? And she was turned into her natural state and she was washing herself in a streamlet as it was just meeting the waves. And you know, he just fell in love with her immediately. And she loved him back. And he went and he took her for his own. Then she fell into a deep sleep, like a kind of charm. And then in the morning when they both woke up, was she not a seal again? And oh, he realised what had happened, who she was. And oh, his heart ached. But, as though he needed all the goodness he had, he carried her back down to the sea and he let her swim away to her own kith and kin where she ought to be. And she spent that night, it said, on a reef near the shore, singing like a mavis, the song of the selkie. Now you might think it's absolutely fantastical that people could be related to seals. However, here's a story for you. It's a true story. In 1984, there was a fishing boat that overturned off the coast of Iceland. And out of the five fishermen on board, three of them managed to climb up on top of the upturned boat. However, the boat sank 45 minutes later. The other two, the captain and the steersman, started to swim for shore. Now, in those temperatures, if you're able to survive 20 minutes, then 
you know, it's some kind of miracle. And these two were swimming along, and then the steersman realised he was on his own. Captain had perished. Now he kept swimming, and he made for sure, but when he got there, it was freezing cold. He was only wearing t-shirt and jeans. He wasn't even wearing anything on his feet. And he started walking across the cold ground. And he knew that like, if he was to succumb to sleepiness or anything like that, if he was to stop and rest, he would die. So he started talking to all the birds around him. And everything was fine for a wee while. And then he got to a sea cliff. And he had to get back in the water. Which he did. Back in the water, he kept swimming. Now, like I say... 20 minutes and you're doing well. This steersman was in the cold, in the water, and out of the water again for six hours. He managed to get home. He got in and nobody believed his story. They were like, you're joking, man. Like if that had really happened, you would be an ice cube outside. In fact, it was such an interesting story. And he pushed it so much that the military got involved and they actually started testing him with like their highly trained division in cold water. And they put him in these cold water tanks with their military people who all had special equipment on and things. And the specials could only last about 20, 30 minutes before they were like, nope, that's it, time up, let me out. But he just kept going. And the most extraordinary thing about this steersman is that when they tested his fat, they found that it was like the blubber of a seal. This next story that I'm going to tell you is another traditional Scottish children's story. And so it's suitable for all ages. Once upon a time in the heart of Argyle, there was a clan chief who had only one son called Bronn. And his son grew up to be extremely proud and selfish. He never thought about other people, couldn't care less about other people's feelings. And nearby there was a forest, and in that forest lived Amborach, a strange little old man of the fey folk. And one day Borach was gathering firewood, as he always did, when Bronn, the chief's son, came thundering along the path on his horse. And Borach went fleeing like head over heels into the bushes, knocked asunder by this horse's hooves. And Bronn just burst out laughing. He just thought it was so funny to see the old man sprawling on the forest floor, sticks everywhere. And then he turned to gallop away, but Borach sprang to his feet and cast a spell on him. Let you look like the beast you are, he cursed Bronn. And know the pain of others, he shouted. And with that, Bronn suddenly fell off his horse and turned into a little pig. Shriek, squealed Bronn, ears flapping. How long must I be a pig in Borach? Borach looked at him. Until a crooked stick upon your head, a pebble from the riverbed, a leaf that crowns the elder tree, and the maiden's kiss to set you free. And then laughing, he disappeared into the woods. Brown the pig sat down and began to wail. I didn't want to be a pig. And what on earth did that riddle mean? And then all his wailing had been heard by a passing farmer who saw the pig and decided to catch it. So he snuck up behind him with a bit of a rope and caught Brown the pig. Oh, Brown the pig squealed so loudly when he realised what was happening and he began to buck and twist and turn and chew the rope and he tried to run and he put up such a fight that the farmer grabbed a big bent stick and whacked Brown the pig on the head with it which is a very cruel thing to do indeed, but it didn't cause Braun any harm. In fact, if anything, it just gave him more energy and he started fighting even harder and finally the farmer was so exhausted, he just gave up, threw the rope aside. Thought, too much trouble for one pig, he thought. Now, despite his sore head, Braun the pig was actually quite happy 
because the first part of the riddle had been completed. Crooked stick upon my head, he thought to himself. And now for a pebble from the riverbed. So off he trotted to the broad river. Oh, he couldn't wait to get that wee pebble from the bottom of it. But when he got there, he discovered that it was extremely deep. Hmm. He snuffled and he poked his head under the water. He tried to walk in the current, but every time he floated back up to the surface again or got dragged halfway down the river. And the pebbles at the bottom were just too far away. And so he stayed there by the river for days or weeks. And he watched the fish and the otters swimming around and diving to the bottom. And he felt very sad and sorry for himself. But then he thought, well, at least it was pleasant to paddle in. And the water was quite cool when the sun was in its blazing glory overhead. And then one morning he woke up to find the river was actually quite dry. It was very shallow, much more so than before. And he could get his feet in it, and he could put his snout in it, and he could reach the pebbles at the bottom. So in no time at all, he'd waddled out and grasped a shining pebble in his mouth, and he carried it off happily to the edge. Next, he thought to himself, I need to find the elder tree. I need to get that leaf crowning the elder tree. So off he trotted, and it didn't take long for him to find an elder tree in the forest. But this was a really tall elder tree. I mean, its branches were poking up into the clouds. And he tried to climb the tree, but his short little fat piggy legs were no good for climbing trees. And he kept falling off and landing on his back and looking quite ridiculous, really. He didn't know what to do, and he sat down, and again he started to feel sorry for himself. And then the rain started, and it just slightly at first pitter-patter, pitter-patter, and then boom from the clouds, a great big thunderclap, and a shock of lightning through the sky. He looked everywhere to find shelter, but it was no use. You should never shelter under a tree during a lightning storm. And... This is why, because a couple of minutes later, the lightning struck the elder tree and sent it flying down to the ground. Crash! Well, Braun the pig was actually quite happy about that because it meant he could rush over and grab that crowning leaf. And then he thought about that last task, the maiden's kiss. Now, who in earth is going to want to kiss a grubby little piggy like me, he thought to himself. And maybe for the first time in his whole life he started to feel very humble. And not for the first time in his life, he started to feel extremely sad. He sat down and he began to cry. And then he heard a noise behind him. Somebody else was crying, just as bitterly as him. He turned around to see who it was. And he saw an old woman had got herself stuck in this big thorn bush somehow. And he saw that she was blind and she couldn't get out. So he snuffled over to her. And she was a wee bit afraid of him at first because this grunting, squeaking thing. And then he started to pull at the hem of her dress and he led her back to the road. And then she was really grateful and happy to follow him. And the two friends walked along the road until they came to her cottage. And there, a young woman ran out of the house. Granny, Granny, where on earth have you been? She said, I was so worried. And the young woman embraced the old woman and helped lead her back to the cottage. Oh, I got stuck in a bush, she said. You wouldn't believe it. And my dog, I don't know where that's gone, has run off. You're supposed to stop me from doing stupid things like that. Well, how on earth did you get out, she said. Oh, this little piggy here. He helped me. The young woman looked down at the little piggy. Piggy Braun looked up at her. Oh, what a hero you are, she said. And she kissed him on his little piggy snout. And as if by magic, Braun... The man suddenly found himself 
snuffling and grunting along the floor on his hands and knees. And when he realised, he stood up. <laughs> well, everybody was a wee bit surprised about that. But Bronn was never the same again. He was far more courteous, far more aware of other people's feelings. And he even went and found Borach and thanked him. Well, can you believe it? I've been asked to tell a couple of stories about horses. No Kelpies, no water horses. Horses, just horses. So, here are a couple of horsey stories. The first story I would like to tell you is a true story, and it's about a man called William Nicholson, and he lived around about the time of the late 1700s. And he was born in poverty, he had nothing to his name, but he loved nothing more than listening to his mother's stories and songs, because she would teach him all kinds of songs and stories and superstitions, and he loved them all. However, he was really not very keen on school, and he just, the, the teachers could do nothing with him at all. He was, it was like he wasn't interested, but that wasn't really the case. Because outside of school, if he was given a book, well, he would just read it so fast. He devoured stories. One of the things he was known for was telling stories, composing rhymes and poems and writing tunes. And there's a record of him being found sat in the middle of a field. And in this field, there were about 30 horses lots of horses, some of them wild and no one was going into that field for quite some time because the horses, some of them hadn't been broken yet and they really were not very interested in people coming near them however, one day someone was walking along and they saw Willie sitting in this field and he was playing the pipes to the horses but not just that the horses were loving it it was like they were dancing around him. They were kicking and jumping and snorting. And when he stopped, they came really close to him until he started to play again. And then they would do it again, skipping and jumping all around him. <laughs> he got a bit of a name for himself, being able to charm wild horses with his pipes. Now, sadly, Despite all his talents, and despite all his demand for his talents, Willie could never keep the money in his pocket. He was always spending it on something, or losing it, or betting it, or drinking it, or something. He did, however, publish a book of his stories and his poems. It was published around about 1814, and it made him a, just, just over £100 which is enough to keep him going for the next year, but not any longer than that. Now, Willie Nicholson is remembered as being the very first horse piper, <laughs> and for all I know, the last. And this next story really follows on from Willie Nicholson because... It's about the horseman's word. Now, in Scotland, we have a thing called the horseman's word. And maybe that it's found other places as well. Probably is. And the horseman's word is this secret society of blacksmiths and smiths and people who work with horses. And they have a special way of working with horses. Special words that they use to charm the horses, get them to do what they want them to do. Special ways of healing the horse. Special ways of putting the shoes on the horse. All kinds of special charms. Now I can't tell you what any of these are, because it's a secret society and I'm not part of it. However, I can tell you a story about it. And it's a folklore story, as far as I'm aware. There is a strange story about a ceremony that took place in a smithy, and the blacksmith was to act as high priest in the ceremony, a ceremony of the horseman's word. 
An eerie hour was chosen, the dark of the moon for choice between the old and the new. However, whatever powers they let loose in that ritual, in that smithy, they were not able to control it. And those outside said that they could hear rattling of chains and the clinking of a bit and bridle and the stamping of hooves and braying and neighing, even though there were no horses inside the smithy. They could do nothing about this, and it was beginning to get wild. The roof of the smithy was starting to rattle and remove itself from the walls, and so they called for Donal. And Donal had a gift with horses, but Donal couldn't utter a word. All he could do was whistle, but this whistle that he had was able to calm the wildest of horses, the wildest of beasts. And not only that, but he could call any horse to him with this whistle. And they said that he got this gift because his mother had been cursed. However, they called on Donal that day, and Donal came into the smithy, and within moments, everything stopped. The roof went back on, the braying and the neighing all stopped. Everything was restored back to peace because of Donal and his whistling. And they say that when Donal died and his funeral was being taken through the town, there were horses which were carrying his casket. And these horses were jumping and they were not happy. They were shivering and shaking. And at a point they actually had to stop and lift the casket down and carry the casket by people to the yard where he was to be buried because the horses would just not move anymore. And whatever Donald's secret was of his gift, he took it with him to the grave. Herds of wild horses are mentioned in 16th century records of Sutherland and Moray and in the records of Aberdeen there's mention of herds of wild horses roaming the forest of Burse in 1507 and the description of these wild horses mentions them being yellow or golden which is interesting because there's a folk story from the same area Aberdeen and the forest of Burse and it's about a kelpie a water horse and it's golden it isn't the white or the black that we're kind of used to and this golden horse this golden kelpie would entice people to ride its back but the second you touched it your hand would become stuck to it and then the horse would gallop down, 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 into the loch or river, whichever was nearest. One way to control the Kelpie, according to folklore, is by taking its bridle, stealing its bridle off its head. And it, that's interesting because the bridle was long thought to be part of the magic of the horseman's word. And there's a story about a magic bridle, Mananan's bridle, the Celtic god of the sea. And this bridle, if you held it over water, even if it was just a bucket of water, it would show you the reflection of an evil beast. And I can't help but thinking that all of these things are related in some way or another. And so when I think about folk stories and folklore, I always wonder about that trace memory from the community and the history. I had a request for a story about the weather or the seasons. So this is for you. A long time ago, when the world was young, there lived two giants, Gaurich and Saurich, winter and summer. And Gaurich was cruel and ugly, and he slept in a big cave for half the year and shook the world with his snoring. And Saurich was warm and happy, made everyone very happy to see him. And these two giants were mortal enemies. And they were constantly fighting for who was to rule the world. But each year, the day came when Gaurich returned. First the black scowl of a cloud appeared, and then the wind grew cold, until at last the giant's ugly head appeared above the mountain tops, and he flung snow before him, and his frosty breath stripped the tree of every leaf and hardened the earth. And Saurich hated to see the earth shiver and watch the birds fly south. But he loved the peace and he didn't want to fight his enemy. 
His rule would only last a little while, he thought, and the sun would shine again. And then one day the gentle Sjauruch was fast asleep beneath a tree, and Kjauruch crawled out of his cave, and he saw his enemy unprepared, so he tore a great big rock from the earth, and he would have killed the sleeping giant had it not been for a wee blackbird in the tree who screamed, Get up, get up, get up! Saurich sprang aside, and the mighty boulder fell far beyond into the mountains, and to this day it remains out in the Atlantic Ocean. It's known as the island of St Kilda. And then Gaurich and Saurich faced each other, and they began to fight, and Gaurich, fresh and strong after his long sleep, struck hard at the gentle Saurich. And snow fell, and great storms raged around them. But Sauruch melted the snow, and at fast it fell, until rivers filled and spread and floods across the land. And then the cunning Gaurich breathed upon the water, so that many birds fell dead upon the shores, and flocks perished in the fields, and even the edges of the sea became frozen. And Sauruch stumbled, and as he fell, Gaurich dealt him a mighty blow. The fight that had lasted for days was over. The mortally wounded Saurich was found by two little birds who were searching for food. One was a robin, and the other was a wren. Oh no, whispered the wren, the great Saurich is dead. He might be dying, wren, replied the robin, but he's definitely not dead yet. Then we have to save his life, said the wren. I'll keep his little heart warm, and you find the fire that'll bring him back into the world. And the wren fluffed out her feathers and spread her wings upon the giant's heart. And the robin searched far and wide for the fire that would save the giant Saurich, and he flew through the silent woods until he was so tired and so hungry he didn't think he was going to be able to keep going. Then he saw a lonely cottage at the edge of the forest, and there was a wee window, and through it the robin could see a fire burning in the hearth. And Robin found a wee hole in the thatch upon the roof, and he squeezed himself through, and he reached the hearth, and he lifted a little red cinder in his beak, and then he returned to where the giant lay. The cinder set a sprig alight, and then the flame grew big enough for the robin gathered branches and he built a fire close to the giant. And when the warmth reached Saurich, he began to stir. And Wren helped Robin to build the fire into a great blaze. And at last Saurich turned his head, blessed the two little birds and walked south to his kingdom where the sun would heal his wounds. But after he had gone... Robin crept under a bush, and he put his head under his wing. His feathers were all burnt from his breast, and he couldn't fly. And for many days, Wren wept for her friend. And to this day, the robin will leave his nest with a brown and speckled breast. But the feathers that the fire burned never fail to turn red before winter comes. Ian the blacksmith poked his head out of the door of the smithy. He could hear something thundering down the dusty road towards him, coming at some kind of crazy speed. And he looked out and he saw a giant horse, jet black, blood streaming from its fetlocks and hooves, smoke pouring out of its nostrils. And it was shouting at him, Quick, 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 blacksmith, new shoes, I need new shoes. Ian realised at once this was no ordinary horse. This was the deal in disguise. He was sure of it. And the horse came thundering into the smithy. Quick, 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 blacksmith! Shouted. And his voice was booming and it shook the whole building. And Ian picked up one of the horse's feet and had a look at it. And the hooves were not the kind of hooves he was expecting to see on a horse. They were ever so slightly cloven. Quick, 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 boomed the horse's voice. The deal in disguise. I've shoes that fit, said Ian, but I'm going to have to clean up these hooves. They're awfully broken and battered. Well then, quick, get on with it, said the deal. And Ian put each of the horse's feet in big 
clamps. And he picked up one of the horse's feet and he started to hammer on them really hard. And he got one of the iron shoes and he belted it on too tight, (laughs) far too tight. And the horse started bellowing and was trying to kick free, but all of the hooves were in clamps. Let me go, blacksmith, he shouted. How dare you? How dare you? And the smoke poured out of his nostrils and the blood dripped from his fetlock. And still Ian continued. Stop it at once. What do you want from me? He shouted. I tell you what, said Ian. I'll let you go if you promise me one thing. You'll do one thing for me. Anything, 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 bellowed Doris. If you see a horseshoe hanging up above the door or a lintel, then that is a place that should be given sanctuary from your evil. What? shouted the horse. Promise it now. Horse without a rider. Promise it. If you see a horseshoe hanging up on the door outside or up above somebody's lintel, you will leave that house alone. Oh, all right, all right, said the tail. You got it. And then Ian genuinely did shod the devil and the devil trotted away. And to this day, people put horseshoes above their doorways or above their lintels to ward off the evil eye, to ward off witches, to ward off the deal and the demon horse with no rider. The owl on silent wings swoops on its prey and it cries in the night with an unmistakable sound, an ancient voice. And the corby's ravens, hooded crows, are all sights to see, thought of as messengers or harbingers of doom or of knowledge. And then there's swans and wild geese, flying and trumpeting their music from the cloudscapes. They've inspired many a legend, like this one I'm about to tell you. There was once a beautiful maiden who lived by the shores of Loch Sunod, and there was a jealous witch who put a curse on this maiden, transforming her into a grey goose that spread her wings and flew north to the frozen lands. Now no one knew what had happened to that maiden, though many searched for her day and night. Eventually the people gave up, eaten by wolves perhaps, they said, captured by fairies. But her lover never stopped searching for her. He searched far and wide, living off the land, whatever he could catch to sustain him on his journey. And he was an extremely skilled hunter with a bow. And then one day he shot the hindmost goose in the gaggle as they flew across the sky above him. And in that instant the goose changed back into his love. And horrified he tore the arrow from her body, broke it into three and stomped the pieces into the ground. And he held her lifeless body and he wept until every ounce of life had left him. And the life from him passed to her. She stirred as if waking from a deep sleep and then transformed once more into the goose. She spread her wings and took to the air. And from the broken arrow grew the first trees of the mighty forest of Caledonia. And the plaid that had been over the maiden became a broad green sword that can be seen up on Speyside. And when the stars crackle with winter frost, the voice of a lonely grey goose can still be heard calling down in the valleys of the high grampians. I had a request for a story about moss. (laughs) And weirdly enough, I do have a story about moss. So... Here we go. Sandy Harg was a cotter in the parish of New Abbey, and he had married a very pretty girl who the fairies had long been trying to steal away from him. And a few nights after his marriage, he was standing on the shore with a net waiting on the approach of the tide. There were two old vessels on that beach, and they had been stranded on the rocks a long time ago. They were just about visible in the dimming light and they were believed to be the haunts of the fairies when crossing the mouth of the Neath. In one of these wrecks, a loud noise was heard, 
as if carpenters were at work. And then a hollow voice cried from the other ship, Ho, oh, what are you doing? And the reply came, I'm making a wife for Sandy Harg. Sandy, astonished, terrified, threw down his net and ran home. And he closed every door and he closed every window and he grabbed his wife in his arms. And at midnight, a gentle rap came at the door. And the wife started to get up to answer it, but Sandy held her. And then footsteps were heard. And then the cattle, lowing and bellowing and ramping as if pulling up all their stakes. And then the horses were heard, prancing and neighing and snorting and stomping. And what a ruckus outside. And his wife, Sandy's wife, cried and struggled and entreated, but he would not let her go. He said, no, please, you can't. You don't know what's outside. The noise and the tumult increased and increased and increased until it was deafening. And then suddenly it died away, the crowing of the cockerel outside. In the morning, Sandy opened the door and he found a huge piece of moss which had been shaped into the exact likeness of his wife as the fairies had been planning to swap her, to swap her with Shuriach. There's another kind of moss and that kind of moss is a place where you pitch your tent. It's a campsite. And this next story that I'm going to tell you is from Kinkel Brig, which is really close to where I grew up. And it's about the moss there and something that happened. Now, it's actually from a song, but I'm not going to sing you the song. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you the lyrics. It was on the night of old St. Sayre's, I had an old Braxy fort to sell. The women there, they got on the ale around the moss of old Kinkel. The Stuarts, Mackenzies and McPhees, they all got doon upon their knees, they walloped the tin just at their ease around the moss of old Kinkel. Now the old sweet being on the booze to yon dyke side to hear snooze, when somebody come o'er to him with news about the row in old Kinkel. The heather merchant called McQueen, with silver buckles on his sheen, he swore that night he'd clear the green around the moss, o' Kinkel. Big Frank Kelby, he come up, all his hand a loading whip, he says, McNeil, ye pup, ye'll die this nicht, in old Kinkel. And I've also had a request for a story about a witch, and so here is a story about a witch for you. There was a whole bunch of lads standing around and they had all their greyhounds with them and they were looking to start hair raising, they were looking to hunt hares and they tried for hours and they couldn't find any hares anywhere, none. And eventually a wee boy came up to them and said that he would raise a hare for them if they would give him five guineas and let him hold their black greyhound. Now, the men tried to dissuade him and tried to offer him all sorts of other things, but no, he wasn't having it. He wanted his money and he wanted to hold the black greyhound. So eventually, they agreed. They let him do it. And immediately, the boy found a hare and he set it. And off it tore across the grass. And the hounds were after it almost immediately. And what a chase this hare gave these hounds. Not one of them could catch it. It was so fast. And zigs and zags all over the place. And the boy was watching and thought it was great sport. And then one of the men snuck up behind the boy and cut the leash of the black greyhound. And off it took. And was faster than all the rest and the wee boy shouted in alarm at the hare run mother run if you've ever run in your life run as fast as you can now and the hare tore off and this black greyhound was just at its heels just 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 and finally the hare leapt into a cottage window and was gone now when the riders came into the cottage with their dogs they didn't find a hare there was an old woman lying on her bed, panting, so breathless she couldn't speak a word. I was asked for a story about charms and wordplay, and one of the ones that's probably probably one of the most famous ones in Scottish folklore comes from Galloway, and it's called The Foss Knight, and it's from a chapbook, 
that I'll be reading it from. So it's not like the other stories I normally tell you, which are just from my memory. But this one I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to do it in the Old Scots, and this is from an 18th century chapbook. I hope you enjoy it. This is called The False Knight, False Knight, and it is a, a very old story from Galloway. And the false knight himself is the devil, the deal. Oh, where are you going? Quo the false knight upon the road. I'm gone to the school, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. And what is that upon your back? Quo the false knight upon the road. A it's my books, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. And what's that you've got on your arm? Quo the false knight upon the road. A it's my peat. Quo the wee boy, and still he stood. Was och these sheep, quo the false knight upon the road. They're mine and my mother's, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. Harmonium is mine, quo the false knight upon the road. Are they that hae blue tails, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. I was ye on yon tree, quo the false knight upon the road. And a good ladder under me, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. And the ladder for to break, quo the false knight upon the road. And for you to fall doon, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. I wish ye on yon sea, quo the false knight upon the road. And a good bottom under me, quo the wee boy, and still he stood. And the bottom for to break, quo the false knight upon the road. And ye to be drowned. Quo the wee boy, and still he stood. If you're wondering why the wee boy was carrying a bit of peat, well, that was the schoolmaster's fee. It was for a peat for the fire. And it, so it might have been that this boy was not going to, like, a school as we think about it now. It wasn't like a, you know, like an official school. It could have been, uh, like, a permanent school, like a... A more casual school. There were loads of schools in Kirimir, for example, which were unofficial schools. And, you know, you would take peat or you would take barley or you would take oats. You would take something. It wasn't money. And you would go to a weaver's house or uh, like a, a dairy herder's house and they would teach you in between doing the tasks of the day. <laughs> so it might have been that he was doing that. It could have been an official school, but it's just interesting. Sometimes you get these wee things in rhymes and stories that just allude to that wee bit of history. Uh, so I thought I would tell you about it. I hope you liked this week's collection of stories. I learned them in the lonely glen, the last abodes of living men, where never stranger came our way but summer night or winter day, where neighbouring hind or cot was none, how stern and ample was the sway of themes like these when darkness fell, when doors were barred and eldern dame plied at her task beside the flame, that through the smoke and gloom alone on dim and umbered faces shone. Thank you for listening to the Scottish Folk Podcast. These stories... My stories, I'm proud to share them with you. I learned them in the lonely glens, the last abodes of living men, where never stranger came our way but summer night or winter day, where neighbouring hind or cot was none, how stern and ample was the sway of themes like these when darkness fell, when doors were barred and eldern dame plied at her task beside the flame, that through the smoke and gloom alone on dim and umbered faces shone. Special thanks this week goes to Marie and Jill. Thank you so much for your extremely generous uh, support of my work. And also I'd like to thank everybody who sent me requests for stories. I love getting requests for stories. I know that I didn't fulfil all the requests. If I didn't fulfil your request this week, then it will be next week or the week after. So I've still got to tell you stories about banshees, kelpies, midwives, and lots and lots of spooky stories and some demon ones as well. So in the next couple of weeks, I hope to fulfil all your requests. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Scottish Folk Podcast and I really hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. 
And if you did enjoy this week's episode, then please share it. Tell your friends. Write me a review. Send me a request. If you would like to support the work that I'm doing, either with the podcast or with the Travelling Folk Museum or any of my storytelling projects, then you can buy me a coffee. The link to that is in my Instagram profile and I am at Eileen Budd. You can find me there. Right. Well, until next time. Hey, Brian. <laughs>